Greeting, Rebel Spirit listeners. I know this is a little unusual. I normally don't speak or record anything before episodes, but I felt that I should give you a little bit of a heads up that there was a audio issue with the interview with Angel Millar. There was a quite a bit of uh, reverb and echo uh, on his part of the recording, and it didn't seem so bad when we were actually recording. I've spent the past few weeks trying to remove both the reverb and the echo, and I was able to remove quite a bit, but not all of it. So I wanted to uh, ask you for your patience and forgiveness. I hope that you still listen to uh, this episode. I think that what Angel has to say uh, is full of wisdom and insight, and I really did enjoy speaking with him. So thank you, constant listeners, for your patience. And here is episode 21 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather. And in this episode, I speak with Angel Millar, author of several books, including The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, Craftsman, Warrior, Magician, and the recently released The Path of the Warrior Mystic, Being a Man in an Age of Chaos. Angel and I talk about the archetype of the warrior mystic, chivalry and virtue, the need to nurture one's genius, humility as a necessary condition for mastery, and why more generalists are needed to help us see the world through different lenses and make connections specialists often do not see. Angel Millar is the author of several books, including The Crescent and the Compass, Islam, Freemasonry, Esotericism, and Revolution in the Modern Age, Freemasonry, Foundation of the Western Esoteric Tradition, Freemasonry, A History, the 2020 publication, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, Craftsman, Warrior, Magician, and his most recent publication, The Path of the Warrior Mystic, Being a Man in an Age of Chaos. Angel is also a hypnotist and personal growth mentor with more than two decades of experience in meditation and related mindfulness training techniques over a decade of experience in the martial arts, and several years as a public speaker on self-development, symbolism, and spirituality. Angel, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you. I found the uh, Path of the Warrior Mystic, being a man in an age of chaos, uh, it resonated with me quite a bit. And uh, I really appreciated it. And I like how you draw from uh, philosophy, myths, psychology, the world's wisdom traditions, uh, especially these classical ideas of virtue and chivalry. Um, I also think it's a very timely book, you know, especially in our current moment where there's a lot of discussion about, you know, so-called toxic masculinity, where masculinity seems to be much maligned. Uh, but also, you know, you write at one point that we live in very illusory times. And right. one of the things that kind of came to my mind was uh, Thoreau, who observed, you know, that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. 
And <laughs> it seems to me that that feeds into this sort of toxic masculinity and that what you're writing is an antidote to all of this, that you're trying to provide a path for men to become whole, integral <laughs> beings. Right. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Yeah, and the path, um, uh, very briefly, starts out from exploring the warrior uh, and ends with the mystic or the creative individual. And it's really bringing those two elements together in this kind of life journey, as it were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I was curious because one, you, you know, the title is The Warrior Mystic. In your previous book, uh, you have you know, the craftsman, warrior, magician. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, how is the warrior mystic different? Um, and what is the warrior mystic? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the, to, be, to begin with the uh, three stages, so the craftsman, warrior, magician, um, <clears throat> really go back to the sort of earliest, you could say, castes or vocations in uh, tribal societies, really around the world, but certainly in Indo-European cultures. And um, it, it would seem that, that these were these the castle, the, vocation, the vocations that men moved through with becoming a, a craftsman in the youth. Um, of course, people didn't go to school until they were 16, 18, 30. They were, they were helping their parents uh, when they were, you know, four five years old, if not earlier. Uh, so originally becoming a craftsman, then when the body matured and they were strong enough, uh, they could become a warrior, part of the uh, defensive force for the tribe. And then later as the body declined, and uh, they couldn't fight anymore, but they had wisdom and were still respected for their wisdom and their knowledge, uh, they would become one of the uh, uh, the sort of spiritual, intellectual guides of the uh, the, the culture, uh, the, the Brahmin, the priest, uh, the magician, uh, etc. And um, so the the, the uh, warrior mystic uh, definitely very much fits into that world, um, but it's in a sense a kind of different way of looking at it. And um, all of these things overlap anyway, of course. But if you look at the warrior in uh, classical civilizations, you find that uh, the, the highest level, uh, the warrior would cultivate not only the arts of war, archery, wrestling, um, the sword, obviously, spear, but would also be renowned for uh, um, uh, poetry, uh, painting, calligraphy. And so you have someone like uh, the samurai, uh, Miyamoto Masashi, who was uh, not, not only Japan's most fam famous uh, samurai, but also is still today renowned for his calligraphy and his painting, was also known for landscape gardening in his own time. Or in the West, you have uh, the Viking, Egil Skallagrimsson, who was also an extremely bloodthirsty warrior, but was also a uh, renowned poet during his lifetime. And he actually was the first in Norse poetry to use end rhyme rather than beginning with the first word of each sentence. So he was kind of revolutionary in poetry as well and even you know mythologically you can think of um uh, the god Odin he's the god of war the wild hunt but also the god of poetry inspiration and magic so that at a certain point all of these things come together but the uh, the warrior mystic is really looking at bringing these two aspects together 
And uh, it begins, the book begins with a discussion of uh, the warrior chivalry and where things have gone wrong for men in the modern age. But it, but it ends with a discussion of the mystic. And uh, the mystic has two meanings in this book. Uh, I, I uh, take the term from the uh, British historian Arnold Toynbee, uh, who used the term mystic to mean, on the one hand, the kind of creator, the creative force in society. And on the other hand, uh, the sort of mystic who received a revelation. So on the one hand, you would have someone like Mohammed who receives this revelation and transforms um, Arabic society as a consequence of that. Uh, he would definitely fit into that, uh, that archetype. But also you could think uh, in terms of the creator of Picasso who revolutionizes uh, the art world, um, in a certain sense brings back the archetypal with some of his later uh, work. Uh, and brings a kind of new message to society and a new way of thinking about things. Um, and then this is off at a tangent, but I'll just mention it. Uh, Toynbee considers the difference between the sort of tribal society or quote unquote primitive society, uh, which uh, you know preserves itself in amber as compared to civilization. And of course, there are still remaining, uh, not very well known, but a few tribes here and there who have been totally cut off from civilization, uh, the rest of the world in the Amazon jungle, who really have never seen anyone outside of their tribe. And um, he, he says the difference is that civilizations uh, have a quote-unquote creative minority and that they always kind of propel the civilization forward and the energy of the civilization, whereas the tribe tries to emulate the ancestors, it emulates the dead and what the dead say. Uh, and what the dead say goes, it's a sort of repeating of the past. Um, so in, in a sense, it's bringing the warrior and the mystic together. You could say it's bringing the masculine and feminine. It's also concerned with developing these different sides within ourselves, but it is also looking at a kind of forward momentum to re-embody the archetypal. There's a lot I want to say based on that, uh, but, uh, or ask you about. One of the first things that came to my mind when you were speaking, and I appreciate this because I hadn't actually thought about it before, uh, but when you were talking about the craftsman, warrior, magician, I think the thing I missed is that it was different stages i suppose and when you were speaking i was thinking specifically about the system of dharma in india which you then <laughs> yeah. brought up to mind and i think we've definitely lost that uh, don't have that in our society at all right and, right um one of the things i wanted to ask you is you know you you I started by, you know, mentioning how you said that, you know, we live in illusory times. How did we get so lopsided in our understanding of a warrior? Because yeah. our understanding of warrior does not seem to have this sort of creative aspect or impulse. To no, it. no, that's right. It doesn't. It doesn't in indeed. Um, well, I think probably, I mean, we could go back to the beginnings of time, no doubt, and trace it all the way through. But I think if we really wanted to um, see where there was a dramatic change, I would say it was really with the introduction of mechanized warfare, and most especially with World one and um, I think uh, World War One has really gone down the memory hole, as if it's just a sort of um, 
uh, unimportant uh, prelude to World War II, which was really important. And I think that's completely false, actually, and it's really historically ignorant. But uh, you know, World War One. Um, Americans can't really appreciate this, but in, you know, really entire areas, if not entire cities, were wiped out. You had no man's land, which was really just, you know, nature just turned into this muddy desert where everything was dead and trenches were dug in for miles or tens of miles or hundreds of miles, just a, a wasteland. And millions of men were sent to die, sent to die mechanistically, almost in a kind of factory conveyor belt-like way. And this is a stunning fact, and I think um, we're very keen to know some facts uh, or some statistics in our age and not others. And I think this statistic is really worth thinking about. On the day, on day one of the Battle of the Somme, uh, the British troops alone lost, uh, lost 20,000 men. 20,000 men were killed on one side in one day, and 40,000 were injured. And uh, that's just in one day. And, um, you know, you wonder how, how on earth can 20,000 men be killed in one day? And of course, the, the, the way they were killed is they were really, you know, told or instructed or ordered, you've got to run across to the you know, where the enemy is, and they're going to mow you down, but that's okay because. We've got to run those bullets out and they're going to do it on you and we don't care because it's the only way to create an opening and 20,000 men are expendable and um, I think that's really what what changed the world one of several things but certainly that was a big factor because you know on all sides um, this was going to be a, a glorious war a kind of um, uh, maybe not an aristocratic war, but they still had this feeling of, you know, chivalry, you know, men fighting as men against each other in, in a, you know, fair kind of sporting combat. And actually what they found, they were just being mowed down with machine guns and machines were doing all the work and they were completely defenseless against this. And of course they went, uh, went home afterwards or they didn't go home but those that did went home with limbs missing or face ripped off or suffering from uh, mustard gas attacks and barely able to breathe uh, and it was uh, traumatic and um, you know they lost uh, every side lost millions of men like that and of course another thing that happens with that is then you have uh, women that never get married and of course women today would say well what's the big deal but the big deal then was that society functioned in such a way that you really needed the family unit to survive there wasn't things like uh you know uh generous well a generous welfare state that could enable you to survive as an individual even with you know as a single parent with 10 children and you would be on the streets and probably dead in no time at all and um, you know even the soldiers the british soldiers that went there were you know many of them were unfit to go there you know kinds of disease and ill health this, 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 the social structure just didn't exist as it does today so you know not getting married for women would actually be pretty devastating for most women at that time and obviously if you're being killed or maimed or or you're wounded or traumatized or you know you see 20,000 of your comrades being killed oh, that's pretty bad for you too and that really shook up 
Uh, I think the way that the West saw itself and saw, and saw war as well, you got the pacifist movement as a result. And pacifism became this big thing after World War One. and pacifism was regarded as the answer. We're all going to be pacifists. There will be no more war. World War One was um, the wars to end all wars, of course. And it was, that was repeated frequently. And then you have World War Two, and pacifism failed as well. So, But I think really with that, you, you have the end of the idea of warrior because of this mechanism element, the ability to just mow men down on mass or bomb them with mustard gas and destroy entire entire units, if not entire armies in one below. It's no longer the sort of fair fight, uh, no longer the skill of the body even. So. I think that in the United States, we do lack that history. Like you said, it's down the memory. Yeah. In Europe, you still have the physical scars of the trenches that mark the yeah. land. Yeah, that's right. Well, I would say, you know, even even in England, I think most young people don't even, or a lot of young people don't even know that there was a World War One or anything about it. But um, yeah, so the historical ignorance, Americans love to think that they're the most ignorant, but actually there's not much between the other Western countries. But, um, but you know, certainly growing up, if you, if you walk around London even now and you Passed by some of the older buildings there, some of the older museums. Uh, they have a lot of chunks out of the side of the building, like bullet holes, which seems to have been caused during World War II. So, you know, right. with, with raids on uh, on London. Right. So we do have some physical scars, yeah. and obviously, um, you know, some of these cities were flattened. I mean, Dresden was reduced to a, a firestorm. Uh, it's completely horrific, and other cities were as well. So, yeah. Yeah, that's something that, you know, Americans in general have never experienced. I mean, you know, yeah. yes, we fought in World War One and World War Two, mm -hmm. but not necessarily on our shores. Uh, you know, even no, right. Pearl Harbor is removed from the mm -hmm. rest of the continent. Um, yeah, and, uh, I think your point is really good about the mechanism uh, or th this mechanical way of viewing humans because that was mm. very obvious in world war ii as well with the concentration yeah, yeah. camps i mean those were models of efficiency yeah and it seems like that um i think it's very difficult to argue against the idea that this mechanization has robbed us of something very valuable uh in terms of being human yeah that's right absolutely yeah oh, absolutely and, and of course with all the conveniences we have today we're speaking uh, using technology which is a wonderful thing but the downside is i think we are losing our humanity even more even though these things are sold to us as conveniences uh then they become essential for work like you know, cell phone for example or email no one can get a job without those today that were originally things for convenience and and, um, you know, and, and the, you know, more and more people are getting sucked into spending their entire lives online, arguing with people they don't know, knowing that they're not speaking truthfully, they're just trying to win in some weird way, yeah. and um, not even seeing the other side as a human, they see them as dehumanized or unhuman in some way. Yeah, and that's something I wanted to bring up because you did write at one point, uh, you you cautioned us to, you know, avoid arguing with the unintelligent and vulgar, uh, which I thought was a uh, really good piece of advice. <laughs> My note, yeah. so essentially stay off of social media, right? 
Um, oh yeah, at least don't get into any arguments, and it's so tempting, of course, because when you see somebody say something really ignorant, whether it's something, you know, on let's say politically on your side or the other side, it's so tempting, at least certainly on the other side, so tempting to really want to criticize that and show no, that's just completely ignorant. The, the problem, of course, is when people post those comments, they know that they're false ninety-nine percent of the time. They, they their aim is to win, is to get to get likes. It's not yeah. to say something truthful. People are very happy lying, and um, I know that this is maybe a weird thing to say, but I think the way to look at that is um, we don't really have fashions anymore, you know, like skinhead or punk or goth or hip hop, but when we did have those things. And we're probably both old enough to remember them. But when we did have those things, of course, it would be a craze. People would wear them for a few years, and then all of a sudden, people would stop. And, um, you know, the weird thing is that people would wear it even if it didn't suit them. And you think, why don't you wear clothes that you would look good in rather than wearing these other clothes that you don't look good in? And today, uh, politics is our fashion, and we do the same thing. Instead of Instead of saying the truth, we say what? Will make us conform to other people to get applause temporarily, and then later on we'll pretend we didn't say it at all. And um, it is a weird thing that people are prepared to dumb themselves down, either physically or mentally, to conform. But and, but even weirder today when people try and conform intellectually by saying something stupid or untrue, they actually feel that that makes them more intelligent because the group is there to support them and applaud them. So it's a very dangerous time um, for the mind, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the only thing I would disagree with what you just said is that I do think that some people are posting things not necessarily because they know that they're false, but that they just don't know uh, that there is, you know, the uh, being an educator. Um, I can tell you that I, I've been shocked at oh. <laughs> what students come into my class not knowing uh, wow. basic things. And so I'll see people post things on Facebook that are just obviously incorrect. And I have taken to, you know, there is that part of me that wants to go in and say, no, 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 this is not factually correct and things like that. And if you just stopped and thought about it for a second, you would see this. Uh, but I don't. Uh, but that educator part of me wants to go in. Uh, but I know it doesn't go anywhere because... No. Like you said, people get so attached and it has become, you know, the, the, the clothes that we wear it has become yeah. the signifier of yeah. who we are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because this leads to another question or something I wanted to talk about is this uh, idea of the warrior and the intellect. And that seems to be something that we've also disconnected from. Uh, but the intellectual virtues are important every bit mm -hmm. to the warrior as to the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that warriors are intellectuals, but they certainly have some some way of well. If you go back to the medieval period, so they were, we don't they didn't think of thinking in the same way that we think of thinking. Today, we think that we are rational, although we are not rational by about ninety nine percent of the time. 
Uh, we know that because you have to look at add-ons and see how things are sold to us. They're not sold to us. Here's a busy drink. Here are the ingredients. Uh, you can weigh up the health hazards with the flavor. It's images of smiling people who are attractive usually or have the same kind of body shape that we might. Uh, happy music. And we want to associate with the cool people as we'll buy that fizzy drink. And everything is sold to us like that. So we're clearly not rational because um, marketers would have worked that out and would be selling us things on basis of their intellectual arguments. But um, uh, in the medieval period, they had the idea of ratio and intellect. And ratio was the rational thinking. It was considered to be the workhorse of the mind. It was kind of the inferior way of thinking. There's the problem. I have to fix it. So I used ratio to fix it, uh, to come to the conclusion. And, um, and then there's intellectus, which is contemplation. So if I'm contemplating a tree or nature or a landscape, uh, I'm absorbed the divine truth in a sense. The creator created the world. Um, in some sense, it embodies the, the divine mind, uh, the divine plan. And uh, by by contemplating it, not making any rational judgments about it, but contemplating it, I'm, I'm sort of absorbing this divine nature. And um, and today, of course, we can think about the mind in different ways, not just as rational thinking, but we're moving through different states of consciousness all the time. Sleep, hypnopompia, when we're starting to wake up, um, maybe rational thinking, probably not much of the time. Daydreaming, uh, relaxation, we're drifting in and out, uh, meditation, all kinds of things, all kinds of states of consciousness that we don't really use. But the worry of the woods, use at least some of these states of consciousness and would have these other ways of thinking, contemplating um, different scripture. Obviously, a Christian nine would have contemplated the Bible, probably would have known it. You know, off by heart in many cases, certainly in Islam, an Islamic warrior uh, would have known the Quran possibly by heart from beginning to end. Uh, certainly, if you go back to the Vedic India, they would have known the Vedas, or at least the large parts of the Vedas. Uh, Zen Buddhism, of course, maybe not so focused on scripture, but still focused on the idea of absolute being in a certain sense. And so they have a different frame of reference to the world and a different way of thinking about the world. And, um, and again, if you are any kind of martial artist, you're going to have to be controlling your mind, your your thoughts, your consciousness, your experience flow occasionally, as we call it today, or no mind, as it would be called in Zen Buddhism. Um, so certainly, this, this is all a part of it. Uh, I think intellect, as we use it today, is like it's a little too specific and limited. But certainly, there's broad world of sort of consciousness and, and being and understanding that, that went along with the warrior for sure. Thank you for clarifying that, you know, because I was thinking that, and I think you mentioned this in the book, that we tend to make this dichotomy of separating uh, the warrior and from those yeah. who would, you know, like write poetry and yeah. uh, have this different rationality and those who focus on intellectual matters are seen as mm -hmm. being more, you know, passive and feminine and, yeah. and we yeah. focus on the others as just lacking any of that. And mm -hmm. again, I think what you're arguing is for that integration of the two. 
Yeah, and, and classically speaking, that was the case. You know, Edgar, Edgar Skallengrut and Viking, also a renowned poet, Miyamoto Masashi. Uh, even Plato spoke about you know learning through music, philosophy, and wrestling. But he actually said that uh, you know those who study uh, wrestling become too too feminine, too sensitive, and those who just study um, wrestling, um, study music, become too sensitive. Those who study wrestling become too hard and aggressive and harsh. And so you have to marry the two. And um, you know this is the case going back hundreds, thousands of years. And uh, it's only I think in modernity that, that they've really been separated, and you get this kind of jock culture, and you get the geek culture, and they're really in a sense that both half of half of people or half of a person each, because the jock probably is perfectly capable of being intelligent, thinking, contemplating, writing poetry, not necessarily that, but doing something creative, and the geek is also capable of working out. And being fit, learning some kind of self-defense, maybe or something, but being physically strong in some way. And it's almost kind of weird. Why wouldn't you want to develop yourself as a whole? And Western society, probably for many decades, is trying to push us into this way of thinking that no, if you're an athlete, you're going to be tough and you're going to be dumb. And if you're a, if you're an intellectual guy, you're, you're I don't know, a computer engineer or something. Just make sure you're skinny and you're weak and you can't defend yourself. That's, why are we thinking like this? Or you know, in even worse, well, not worse, but uh, parallels this. You know, if you listen to a lot of um, uh, sort of career gurus and marketing gurus, they say find a niche. Find the smallest niche you can, and then find a niche within that niche. So you're the expert in this tiny little field. So we're, all of us are trying to be made to a very niche, but we're actually a mind, a body, spirit, and we should be develop, developing ourselves as a whole. And um, and I would say that it's becoming uh, a little more recognized now that as we move forward into the 21st century, we're actually going to all need to be a lot more generalists. And I'm not saying that that's what I'm promoting, but if you are a warrior and a, and a mystic or a creative person and a physically strong person, you, and you can see the world through these different lenses, that's much more in line with a, with a generalist than a specialist. So it's important. Yeah. That's something I wanted to ask you about anyway. Um, you know, this mm -hmm. idea of generalization uh, versus specialization. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've personally run into quite a bit, having existed my almost entire adult life in academia. Right, right. You know, academia, it is exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you specialize, you focus. And you yeah. know, even when you get through the PhD, it is, you know, you are the master of just a tiny little speck in the yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, And my experience has been rather different um, because I am all over the place. Uh, mm -hmm. I would actually consider Good. myself a general, <laughs> but that has not worked to my advantage in terms of employment uh, so much. Yeah, yeah, right. A little bit, but I like what you wrote i think you said something is that you know when we uh when we're generalist we can connect the dots whereas yeah. when we specify you know or spe our specialist you know we're just focused on one dot 
Um, right. It seems to me that's exactly what we need to do right now is we need to start connecting the dots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and again, it's probably another reason for many of the problems that we have in society that none of the dots are connected. And, um, you know, we all feel, it seems, or a large section of society feels uh, apparently that if we keep criticizing, complaining, and shouting, that this somehow will magically create solutions, or that the politicians that we don't trust will magically create solutions for us, which I think is most absurd way of thinking and imaginable. But uh, that actually uh, any solutions will come from creativity. And creativity comes generally when you have uh, a good understanding of something, you have, you have good technical skills in something, if it requires that, and you have a broad knowledge or wide knowledge of things, and then things will spark your imagination. Oh, that's like something else that nobody else would have thought because I saw that. You know, the weekend, or that reminds me of something in a different field that I once saw, and um, and then you kind of can create something new. Um, but if we're stuck in a niche where nothing new will really occur, we'll just keep going down a particular tunnel, uh, unconnected to other things, uh, which is going to prove very unhelpful. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You mentioned this idea that you know uh, we. We like to critique things. Uh, and I think, you know, we also like to play the victim. Um, and you wrote that we need to kill our inner victims. Yes. And uh, I agree with that. And, you know, I have people that I, I love deeply that tend to do that. And I've fallen to that pattern as well. It's mm -hmm. you know, sure, sure. system. You know, yeah. feeling trapped, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, why why do you think that we like to see ourselves as victims, and how can yeah. we kill our inner victim? Yeah, well, I think one of the reasons we like to see ourselves as a victim is that no matter where we are in the sort of ladder of society or in the food chain, if I'm a victim, I'm automatically more important than where I actually am. So if, I, if I'm a millionaire and I say, I've been wronged by society, well, then I should be a billionaire. That's actually naturally where I should be. It's just I've been held down, so I'm only a millionaire. If I'm, if I'm a billionaire, I could be a multi-billionaire, that's where I should be, but, but the society is helping down. And people might be thinking, well, billionaires don't think that, or millionaires don't think that. Well, take a look at the celebrities. Well, all of them are on Twitter saying how hard done by they are, how hurt they are, how life has been difficult for them. And I'm not saying it hasn't, because actually, if you look at celebrities, they often have had illnesses or grew up in poverty and so on. But what they complain about, uh, seems to be very much in line with contemporary politics and more often more about getting a paddle on the back than actually anything that they might really have experienced. But I think this inner victim makes us feel that actually we're much more important than, than we should be, uh, than we are right now, and it's just unfair. And you know, I'm sure, I'm sure you've experienced this, not in terms of uh, the victim, but you walk into a bar and in the middle of nowhere, and some guy will be telling you about what the president should be doing, you know, who, you know, all he does is go to a bar every night and work in, you know, some blue collar job, which is fine, but he probably doesn't really have the qualifications to say what the president should do. You've mentioned 
and this is a core theme in the book, uh, chivalry. And I was uh-huh. reading your book as well as coming from a place of virtue, uh, virtue theory, uh-huh. uh, from how I understand it. So why don't we look at chivalry and virtue and how you understand those, how, how you're yeah. defining them? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so chivalry and virtue. Well, so chivalry, um, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this double demand that's placed on the, the chivalrous, on the knight. And uh, he says, you know, the knight must be fierce in battle, but meek in uh, civil society. Uh, and he notes that not all uh, warriors are able to accomplish this. Um, so in a sense, uh, it is being able to face the worst and the most violent and aggressive and threatening of uh, times with some kind of composure. Um, and I think that's you know, a word that slipped from our consciousness, but for, to face things with composure. But also not to use this force that the individual, the knight, the warrior possesses to, um, uh, to get his way with the innocent or women or whatever it might be. Obviously, uh, atrocities are committed against men, women, and children in wars. And uh, I think we all know about that. But one would not say that that is chivalrous, uh, besides being a war crime in modern times. Um, I don't think... Uh, I don't think that chivalry has ever, or chivalry has never uh, allowed such behavior. So on the one hand, it is being brave, meeting uh, certainly uh, an enemy, meeting the potential of being maimed or the potential of death, uh, which is very real for the warrior with composure and really not thinking that much about life in a sense, not trying to hold on to life. Yeah, of course, trying to win and trying to defeat the enemy, but not not really sort of loving life in itself, really always being sort of focused on death and beyond death. And then, um, yeah, then when you come in contact with uh, innocent people, either in your civilization or the one you might be fighting, um, a really... Um, treating them with respect, so not abusing the, the those who can't fight or are physically weak, uh, to pose a threat to you and treating them with respect. So certainly respect for the enemy would be one virtue that one could uh, find within chivalry, and certainly there are others. Hospitality was part of chivalry, both Christian and Islamic, of course, and other cultures. Uh, Pre-Christian Northern European hospitality was a very big deal. So, yeah, so I think that would be a sort of basic foundation. Yeah, I was curious. I wanted to see if I could get any insight into chivalry by looking at the etymology of the word. And uh, all I could really find was that it is connected to a uh, sort of the culture, I guess, or society right. or cast of knights. Um, yeah. And so it is this sort of moral code of sorts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, su- I suppose, uh, you know, the, the big difference between that and a regular sort of warrior code, let's say, from even 
earlier periods when perhaps there weren't quite as many rules governing things. Uh, I think the big difference would be this uh, really attempt to treat the innocent fairly and respectfully, and also uh, this, this idea that the knighthood, knighthood is itself, or the warrior is in some way connected to greater culture. So even um, Richard the Lionheart, who was always on crusades, of course, uh, he is supposed to have invited uh, musicians from his enemy Saladin's camp to come and play Islamic music for him. Uh, he was also supposed to have loved it. Now, that may be uh, not entirely uh, provable, but it certainly fits in with the idea of chivalry that there's an appreciation for the arts, an appreciation for non-combatants, -com and for culture and civilization in general, even though you may be fighting the, uh, the other person or the other side. So that was chivalry. So let's mm. turn our attention to virtue. Uh, I think that there has been this for a long while now, this idea of making virtue, uh, it's been kind of feminized in many ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, right. But virtue had a different meaning. Um, mm -hmm. so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. So the, the word virtue etymologically goes back to the word virtus, which means essentially, uh, in a sense, manly, uh, from the word ver, meaning virile. And then, of course, uh, well, that was the original meaning. Later on, certainly in Victorian society, a virtuous person was a person who refrained from doing manly things, especially fighting. It would be virtuous to walk away from a fight, for example. Or by that time, even more especially, uh, to be virtuous was really something that that applied to women. Women were virtuous because they were virginal and pure and didn't have these wicked thoughts that men had. So it was sort of an anti-masculinity term in a sense, or tinged with anti-masculinity. So it's a complete inversion to the original. And um, uh, certainly in the modern era, it would seem to me that, uh, you know, maybe partly Certainly, partly because of World War One and other things, or the very much accelerating in our own time. Uh, now we can virtually think of no virtues that a man might have, uh, and you know, the men are often regarded as, in a sense, the kind of um, inferior women or women that went wrong somehow. And you know, we're all female in the womb, and then and then there's a mutation that gets men, and men must be somehow bad. Um, it's a very strange um, time that we live in. Anything masculine is regarded as toxic and in need of being policed, you know, by society in some way. So, right. And I think it's so crucial, though, to have a healthy understanding of masculinity and models yeah. uh, of that. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the reasons I really appreciated your book. Uh, and as I said to you before we uh, began recording, uh, virtue theory has been one of the areas that I have spent quite a bit of time uh, researching and studying. And, uh, you know, I've been shouting from the rooftops as much as I could, can that we need a return to virtue. 
And I know I'm not alone in this. Uh, I know that uh, the philosopher Nietzsche uh, kind of mm-hmm. argued something similar. And I wanted to ask you about yeah. Nietzsche, if he'd been a mm-hmm. influence on you. I know he appears a couple times in the book. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I think I read Nietzsche quite a lot when I was younger, and he definitely is an influence. And some of these are, although I rarely sit down and read Nietzsche from cover to cover anymore, and certainly is somewhere in the psyche and somebody that I will return to periodically. And I think you can't even really evaluate modern society without Nietzsche. The destruction of all values and the creation of new values, but out of war. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that with virtue, uh, and I think this is what Nietzsche got is, you know, he was one of the first, I think, to criticize a lot of the modern moral theories, especially mm-hmm. utilitarianism. Right. Yeah. And there was a movement that started in the 50s, I think, to say, you know, well, maybe what we need to do is kind of go back to virtue. And I, I see it as incredibly important, even politically. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is the soapbox that I stand on all the time is, that, mm-hmm. you know, the United States was founded as a republic. And right. the core idea of any republic is that the citizens and the politicians have to be virtuous. Right. Exactly. You know. Always understood that if we weren't, that would lead to the collapse of, of the republic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. And you also need an educated uh, citizenship as well that can think, not just consume opinions from the media, but can think, is that correct? Uh, is that true? And be able to think through it and come to their own conclusions. Yeah, we don't have a lot of either of that, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 And I think, and you talk about this a little bit, um, you know, the for the the Greeks, the whole point of virtue is to achieve eudaimonia, mm-hmm. right? Which often right. is translated as happiness. Now they're mm-hmm. tra- translating it as, I think, flourishing. Uh, mm-hmm. But I always think of it in terms of like having a good spirit. But you right. find the it demon. yeah, yeah, having a a, a good genius, uh, right? A good genius. Uh, what what does that mean? What does a good, having a good genius mean? Yeah, yeah. So the genius would be the daemon, obviously. This sort of this voice within us that is really our true self, in a sense, and or we might say our our potential. Um, something higher than us that is us. Obviously, it's a little difficult to describe, but the way that we can bring this daemon or the genius out is, I think, through. Uh, usually through mastering some kind of skill, whether it's a martial art or painting or poetry or something else, but typically something where um, we have to be inventive and creative, learning a skill, letting it master us, and you know, letting it mold us, and sometimes like molding our body quite literally, especially if it's a physical art. And there will be physical changes, but then at some point you go beyond the teachings and you manifest something that has not been seen before, but is at the same time, I think, um, if it's true, is archetypal or classical in some kind of new form. And you know, the Carl Jung brand, the Lebanese poet said, uh, 
I paraphrase slightly, but at the end of the prophet, he says, uh, if anything I've said is true, uh, someone else will come again and say it in a new words. And I think the genius is manifesting this truth that classical civilizations and others have known about, manifested, and you kind of re-manifest it in a way that's right for today. And that's a difficult thing because, especially in our society, um, we're, we're kind of an extremist and we go from left to right. We believe this one year, then the next year, uh, even if the political science haven't changed, next year we might say, no, that's hate now. We're on to some other new thing or some new group is obsessing us and then oh, who cares about them. But we're on to something else. I mean, it's constantly shifting, constantly shifting. And so, it's almost impossible to be consistent and stay with the mainstream narrative unless you deny and said all those other things before. And um, yeah, genius is, in a sense, you have to ignore all of that, learn something, become a master in it, and push push beyond what's being done before. And when you manifest something new, something new that is nevertheless timeless, and that, that is the genius, or that's the genius being expressed in some way, the demon. Yeah, it kind of takes me back to what we were discussing a little bit ago uh, in terms of sort of, you know, the identity politics and whatnot. Mm. And it seems to me often that all of these trappings of identific you know of identity that we're always looking outside of ourselves um, mm -hmm. yeah we are and yeah. this idea of the genius is no you have to go within and yeah really find who you are yeah you, you go, go within and there's sort, sort of a meeting point in religious terms between you and the deity right which is not necessarily receiving a revelation of such although you could say a, a poet might be inspired that would be that would be the daemon or the genius he's inspired he flows out of him and you know and i'm not saying um uh, this i'm not trying to elevate myself but definitely at times what i'm writing and i think a lot of you know experienced people have find this occurs when i'm writing sometimes it just seems to be flowing i mean other, other times maybe not but sometimes it's just I really, I just write, that's it. It's all pretty much perfect. And other times, no, but that experience of it just flowing or the flow um, is that daemon. So it's going within, but also in a sense, it's this meeting point of you and divinity or you and something higher that we can't quite grasp the meaning of that we call God or the spiritual or something like that, or the Tao or whatever it may be, or no mind in Zen Buddhism for example so you're both going within and then contacting something that is ever present or beyond us or however we might think of it so it's a kind of weird thing that happens yeah i i understand what you're uh, saying i am working through a book uh, i shouldn't even mention it because i don't know if i can remember the title uh but it's about writing but that's the um uh, the main point that the author is trying to get at is that for writing you have to enter that state of flow um, yeah um, you know yeah and, and obviously that takes a long time you can't really you you can't experience that after a month or six months or a year it's going to be probably more like 10 years and obviously you can experience this in other things as well certainly in martial arts painting or dance definitely uh, you can experience this flow and it, 
when you experience it, it definitely has this feeling of something beyond me is, is moving through me. And, um, you know, just in martial arts, for example, um, you know, there are definitely times when um, you react and, and you kind of consciously you catch up with the reaction after and think, oh, wow, how did I, you know, block that punch or whatever. Because there was nothing conscious doing that. It's almost like something is moving through you and that's very much the sense. Yeah, we have to get out of our own way, I think. Yeah, we do. And that's, it's tricky, but that's exactly what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, but the things like the martial arts, um, <laughs> for example, don't they prepare us for that? Um, isn't that part of it is to receive that kind of training? I don't know. I don't <laughs> practice any kind of martial art. <laughs> Um, preparing more in one way. Uh, just preparing the person to be open to that kind of. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly there's a lot of. Um, it really depends on the martial arts school, and martial arts can be extremely different depending on where you go. So it's difficult to generalize because you might go to one school and it might be doing slow forms. It might never have any kind of physical contact with anyone. You could go to another school and they're beating each other up for two hours at a time. And there's no sense of any doing any, doing any forms or anything. But yeah, so typically, I mean, definitely there should be some kind of mental training. Um, certainly, uh, I've done, done a little meditation, meditation, some, or you might regard as self-hypnosis as well, isn't it? And, um, and then there are other physical training as well, such as conditioning the body as well. So, and, and repeating drills over and over again to um, condition the body to move in a certain way as well. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is humility. Uh, let's talk about humility, uh, because mm -hmm. you, I think you were saying something just a little bit ago about sort of adopting a position of intellectual humility. And, uh, I think that you wrote that it was something like a condition of mastery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was wondering if you could speak to, uh, this idea of humility, uh, especially in regards to this as a warrior mystic. Sure, sure. So I think, uh, you know, we today think of humility as weak, um, as being a pushover, um, of always saying, oh, no, I'm the worst or whatever. Uh, and obviously, there are many people who sort of have a sort of fake humility. Um, in the world of spirituality, I've noticed over the years, a lot of people will position themselves as a spiritual teacher and then at some point they say, but well, of course, we're all students, uh, which really means they just want to, they want to be seen as a master, but also want to be credited as someone who's very humble as well. Um, so this is fake humility. Um, I have this idea which uh, makes sound weird, and I say this slightly tongue-in-cheek, but the and it is that we want to be humble, but not modest. And by that, I mean, we don't want to go around uh, always giving way to everybody else all the time. Um, but we do want to ask ourselves, is this true? Am I doing my best? When I got angry at that other person, was it really all them? Or did I do something that I could change? Or when, you know, martial arts, somebody may have done something like punch me in the face. Is it really their fault or should I have done 
something different what could i have done better but i think humility is of asking yourself those questions and always thinking well there must be something i can do to be better and i want to be better and i'm always wanting to be better and always thinking that i can can be better and um you know for myself i never try to look back too much on what i've done i'm more interested in what i'm going to do or can do and i always try to be better and um certainly if you read the writing in my first book and then you read the writing in my last two it's almost like a different person because i'm always trying to improve and i think that that you to be to become a master of anything you have to have that attitude of I can, I can always learn. learn. I can always learn from anyone. My aim is to be better than I am now. And you know, certainly when I've been in a martial arts class sometimes, you know, maybe there'll be times when I don't really want to be there. And uh, someone, someone will come in who's been practicing just for a couple of months and um, really giving it 110%. And, you know, then I can think to myself, that person is giving me what they've got. I should probably do the same and not sort of think that oh i've been doing this for years so i don't need to try that's arrogance mm -hmm. to be humble you can think yeah that person who has virtually no experience in compared to me is doing something right and i should use that as an example so you need that to learn but you, what you don't want is this sort of false modesty where you position yourself as a spiritual teacher and then i'm just a student after all you know to, to try and seem more humble you know so that people would like you even more well, and you know, I have to, you know, partly my feeling because I grew up in England and, and England and America are very different in the sense that America is very much about putting yourself forward. Whereas in Britain, it's very much more about we need to play this game where we're all being, uh, we're all being modest. And then uh, if you compliment me, I'm going to deny the compliment so that you'll say it twice. And um, Americans are much easier to deal with. You just give them a compliment and they say thanks. So I actually prefer that. <laughs> but it's difficult for Americans to appreciate this sort of weird old world game playing of modesty, which is sort of yeah, weird kind of um, hierarchical game playing. And you find it in other cultures like it, like Japanese culture as well. So. Right, right, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the this idea of humility, I liked quite a bit in the sense and what you're just saying is, you know, personally, I try to do the same thing as an instructor, where it's, you know, yes, I have, you know, more education than I probably need, uh, that anyone probably needs. Um, but, you know, I still I don't know everything. And right. I still learn from my students all the time. Yeah, and, yeah what I always try to do is I think what you just said is to recognize, you know, we're all searching for truth together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's when you reach a certain point, there's that balance where um, uh, you, you have to, you have to put your money where your mouth is and say, this is what I stand for while at the same time being open to accepting new information and thinking about it and absorbing it and changing it if necessary uh, i think that's the balance that one needs to aim for really yeah i think that every i think it would be much better if everyone recognized that they could be wrong <laughs> yeah and right that's where i see the humility at and <clears throat> i also think that maybe this idea this lack of humility gets back to this identity as, as well 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, nope, this is how it is. This is what I think, and this is correct. Uh, and yeah. the fear of being incorrect is an attack on the individual. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is partly because um, creativity has actually measurably declined over the last four decades. And, um, and it's been measured and it literally is declining. But you don't really need uh, any kind of test or measure to see it's in decline. You only have to look at the culture over the last 40 years. And especially with, uh, you know, people in their teens, for example. And okay, sure, there have always been many young people who are not very creative, but within the teens, early twenties of any generation from probably 1950 to 1990, maybe 2000, uh, there were always new fashions, new youth cultures, new creative movements. And um, you don't find that anymore. People, you know, the coolest music today is probably hip hop and country, which is 40, 50 years old. And um, you don't have anything equivalent to goth or punk or hip hop or anything like that. And uh, instead of people, young people sort of, you know, making their own fashions or movements, they're just going online to Twitter and complaining or posting photos on Instagram. And um, obviously that is less creative. Um, and, but if you are not very creative and if your identity is all online, what you tweeted, you know, five minutes ago is your equivalent of fashion or whatever it is, then it is your identity. You're not just, when someone criticizes that, they're not just criticizing your opinion on some probably largely irrelevant subject or criticizing your identity. And so, you know, yeah, it's the problem. Yeah, and that seems to go, this lack of creativity seems to go hand in hand with a lack of curiosity. Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, that, that is something that's very true of the West. We're really, um, there's a distinct lack of curiosity, and I, I wasn't alive at that point, but if you think back to the 1960s, when there was real curiosity about um, Eastern culture, Buddhism, Hinduism, of course, in particular, um, people were going on a hippie trail they went through Afghanistan, um, hung out in Afghanistan, other than India, of course, Kashmir, uh, and elsewhere. And, um, you know, we're really interested in, in Eastern cultures, non-Western culture, uh, and many other things, of course, as well. And we're creating art or making their own clothing and things like this. And, um, whereas today the, 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 sort of relationships to non-Western cultures, it's all sort of very hands-off. We mustn't criticize, but you also mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't take it on board as well, because that's cultural appropriation and that's a form of racism, uh, which is, is the weird, weirdest thing ever. And it's the first time in history where anyone has ever heard that. And cultures influence each other all the time. Um, that's the, way, that's the way cultures evolve. Uh, civilizations influence each other. Even when they're at war, they influence each other. Hence, 
the uh, the anecdote about uh, the lion heart. But um, yeah, so it's very strange, and it's a sort of mental policing. But um, and this may be, and hopefully not for too much of a tangent. There are all these theories about why, and I don't want to muddy the waters even more. But I, I, I partly suspect that for a lot of people, anyway, that this is actually an anti-creativity movement because you get to critique anyone who creates anything, regardless of what it is. It's not politically correct enough, or it is, and that's cultural appropriation which is just as bad, you get to criticize that too. And the only people who cannot, cannot be critiqued are the people who, are the, who do the critiquing, who don't do anything else. And I think it's maybe compensating, though now people can go online and see all kinds of, or anything essentially, that they, maybe they feel that they're not really, in a sense, fully in the world, and the way to compensate is to attack anybody who creates anything. So I think it's, in a sense, it's the kind of anti-creativity movement. I mean, it's one reason why it should be ignored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that in part, uh, from my experience, uh, I think one of the things that feeds into this is the, uh, the creation of the internet. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of times uh, what I am seeing in students is that, well, they don't need to be curious. They don't need to know anything because mm -hmm. they have Google. They can just yeah. look it up and get what they need to right. and uh, move forward. Um, yeah. I also saw this, and this the first time I saw this, it just, my jaw, I think, hit the floor. Uh, I was in a class and I was um, uh, covering uh, uh, Socrates, the Apology. And I think it's my favorite passage in all of philosophy. Uh, I should have it memorized. I don't know if I do, but it's where... Socrates is defending himself and he asks the jury, he's like, you know, why is it that you seem to care so much more for wealth and prestige and uh, honor rather than the greatest improvement of your souls? And I will never forget, I had a student raise her hand and what she asked, she's like, who was he to judge? <laughs> that's a great anecdote wow uh, I, I, all i know is i went on a little rant after that i don't remember yeah my rant was but i think it was something like we all need someone to prod us you know he was the gadfly mm -hmm. to try to get us at our higher selves and mm -hmm. it seems like what you were just saying is that that's like forbidden now yeah that's right well and of course she didn't even perceive the irony that she herself in saying that is being judgmental right really it's not a question it's actually a comment that he is no one to judge right he shouldn't be doing it that's what she's really saying so yeah yeah so yeah i think it is an attack on anyone who does anything creative and it's and then there's also this other element that we must all conform as well. So we don't want anyone who's going to stand out. And, um, you know, for, very unfortunately, uh, the, the conformists all think of themselves as very radical and very, um, very sort of rebellious, but even though they're all conforming and won't say anything that isn't said on CNN or wherever it may be said. And, uh, and that's you know, the most unfortunate thing because people have always conformed, but in the past, that sort of attitude was largely restricted to you know, old people that everyone ignored. You know, and young people just got on and lived their lives and were creative and rebellious. They didn't 
act like that. And now it seems like the track is the we get people to conform by telling them it's actually a form of rebellion when it's clearly not. Well, it's a form of rebellion against intelligence, but that's the creativity, but that's not what you want. So. Yeah. How, how can we spark the fire of creativity again? Yeah, well, um, I think, first of all, you know, for people who are inclined towards creativity, you just have to ignore all of these voices and realize that no matter what you do, someone is going to pretend to be upset somewhere. So you just ignore them and live your life and create what is meaningful to you. But in regards to actually learning to becoming creative, you really have to expose yourself to lots of different things while studying one, one thing very deeply. So if you're studying, let's say, painting, for example, uh, maybe you look at um, art house movies, sculpture, poetry, literature, uh, and all kinds of other things that might eventually kind of go into the subconscious and just stay and create something new or spark some new idea. Um, there's a there's a designer, it may not mean so much now, but uh, called Isimiyaki. Uh, he, now he just creates uh, clothing out of these heat pressed pleats in polyester that are very expensive. But um, about 30 years ago, before anyone else, you know, he was creating clothing out of all kinds of things like paper, uh, moldings of plastic with, uh, with natural fibers and creating things that were inspired by origami or kimono, but also Western clothing. They created this weird sort of hybrid of partly timeless, kind of partly tribal, partly very futuristic as well. But you can see that there's all these different elements that come together in it. And um, that's kind of what you need to be creative. You have to draw in these different elements, not mix them, um, uh, just for the sake of it, but allow things to just stay in your mind and something will come out. And, um, you know, in a sense, you can't really help but allow these things to come out even when you think they are not. So, so it's important to have a wide, at least wide field of uh, knowledge or things you've seen that you can draw from that might spark your imagination think about these things while practicing something very deeply, um, at least one thing, whatever that may be, that somehow they can manifest in. Okay. So it's a bit of a combination of the generalization and specialization. Yeah, that's right. You need at least one thing that you're going to specialize in while uh, looking at other things outside. And um, and, and again, uh, you know, in the late Japanese samurai manual, the Hagakura, which is quite a violent manual, it says, you know, if, if um, when you master a way, uh, you, you should be able to look at other ways and be more and more in accord with your own. So if you're, an, if you're a master with a sword, uh, you should be able to look at painting or even take up painting and learn more about the sword from that or other arts as well. And, um, you know, and you find in Japan that uh, a master sword fighter might also be a master calligrapher, a uh, master painter as well. So, uh, yeah, there's always this, you have to focus on one thing, but that will enable you to look at other things and improve your own art as well. So. It also seems to me that what 
kind of would help, I think, is role models for people, you know, the people who do uh, follow, that that create uh, and yeah. follow their paths. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the questions I actually had that I wanted to ask you about this was, who who are some of your role models? Yeah, it's a tricky one. It's especially tricky today because all of our role models are kind of dragged down and debased, really. Um, uh, even thinking of someone like Gandhi, who, you know, for many people is a sort of superhero and a saint. But actually, when you do a bit of digging, it's, you know, there are other scandals there and he's not. <laughs> not entirely saying it. Of course, no one is saying it. No one is like that, really. But um, so it's very difficult uh, because all of our heroes are dragged down and debased. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a good question. Who would my heroes be? Yeah, I don't know if I have heroes, but I think people who have inspired me along the way. Um, suddenly, um, Izzy Miyake actually inspired me many years ago. This idea of you draw on tradition, but you're innovative, innovative at the same time. Uh, that suddenly inspired me when I was younger. Um, I would say uh, Yukio Mishima as well is a controversial Japanese author. I don't know if you know his writing. But uh, so, um, yeah, he's, uh, he's very controversial. And um, um, what inspired me by him is that um, he he was kind of a weak and sickly child. I think in some respects, I probably was as well, uh, who later on took up bodybuilding and became very, um, very muscular. Um, and he also pushed boundaries in all kinds of ways. There were things about him that people wouldn't like, but you know, he was a starting gangster movies. He had his own private army. I'm not saying that that's necessarily an aim of mine, but you know, uh, he sort of pushed the boundaries. He was Japan's really greatest literary figure of the 20th century, or certainly one of them. And um, but but apart from pushing all these boundaries. Um, and sometimes shocking Japanese society. Uh, you know, I like the fact that he started off as quite weak and then built himself up and became this totally different person, um, became much more in his body. And I think for me, that's also been uh, something that I've had to struggle with over the years and be more in my, more in my body. Um, so then he would be an inspiration. I'm sure I'm going to think of 10 other people later on, but uh, they would be two people who've inspired me over the years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, and I think that outside of the role models, or moral exemplars, mm-hmm. it also noted that, you know, we need to associate with quality. And associate, yeah. I think with people of quality, mm-hmm. though it's not yeah. necessarily having an individual, but just putting ourselves in an environment where mm-hmm. improving ourselves and striving for something better uh, is also an essential component to this. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, um, I mean, I'm lucky because I have friends who are highly intelligent. One of my closest friends who lives nearby uh, practices martial arts. Uh, we read similar books. Most of the times we can influence each other and recommend books. So that's two things we have in common. And we have all kinds of other things uh, interesting in common as well. So that's being, you know, uh, invaluable. Um, but, you know, going back into my earlier life, uh, when I was, I was, I was very rebellious when I was very young. So I started going to nightclubs when I was about 14 years old and dressing very, very outrageously. And um, 
really young, really. Yeah. And, and by the time I was about 17, I was really sick of it. Uh, to be quite honest, starting by 18, I was very much over going to night class. And, uh, and, I, and I reached a point really when I was about 17 that I really had to make a decision to just uh, change all my friends. Some had drifted away already, but I, I felt that those who remained were just sort of of pretty low quality really and uh, you know i definitely struggled for a little while with not really having very many friends but it was really a break i needed to make and um you know i've noticed that the people who can't make that break sometimes get dragged down with these people even if they're more intelligent you have to cut these people off unfortunately um because they're really going to drag you down uh, it's not like you're going to pick them up probably and you have to find people that can inspire you or you can have a good uh, relationship with you inspire each other that's even better yeah absolutely I, I i agree with that and experience something similar um although i don't think i dressed outrageously um, <laughs> I, I used to rebel against that i remember one of the things that i was always saying is like um and this was my critique is, hey, let's all look different together. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> always that, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, that, that is the thing about rebellion. It always requires a kind of conformism. Uh, and then there's the, the playwright, um, Quentin Crisp, I don't know if you know him, but he said, uh, uh, young people have solved the problem of how to rebel and how to conform. They now rebel against uh, older people and conform to each other, which is essentially right. true. Yeah. So yeah, I always get that. That is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. In regards to you know, along the same line of uh, role models and uh, associating with quality, doesn't this also imply, in a way, that we can't do all of this alone? Uh, the warrior right, right. doesn't exist mm -hmm. in isolation and i think that this is something that is maybe something that is difficult for an american audience because our model the primary model i think in the u.s is not necessarily the warrior mystic but the cowboy you know the rugged individual who does it all and alone you know does it all alone yeah um, but community is important isn't it yeah, for sure. Yeah. And obviously there were communities of cowboys and people around them, you know, panhandlers, whatever it was. But in short, the, the sort of archetypal modern image of the cowboys, the sort of Clinton Eastwood figure who comes out of the nature, out of the wilderness alone to uh, take down the uh, corrupt gun fighters. But yeah, it's absolutely. And this is one of the enormous transformations of our society. I don't really understand the um, the implications of it probably. That even if um, if you have to go back to the 1970s, uh, I think it was two thirds of Americans were still attending uh, club meetings regularly. And of course, today people think, oh, clubs boring. Uh, you know, whatever it might be, that you know, some kind of ethical club or club for women or club for men or whatever but um you know that means you really have most of society interacting with each other and um with people that you might not otherwise come into contact with as well and around where i live there's actually a lot of greek um soccer soccer supporting clubs and i, I would imagine that of course they're all greek but i would imagine that they all have different professions and may not otherwise uh, meet each other um 
from 1985 to 1994, there was, uh, I think, 45% drop in club attendance. And then you think, of course, as well about the drop in church attendance, which I believe is declining in America and is set to decline very rapidly over the next few decades. It won't be that different to Europe. Uh, in Great Britain, church attendance now it only is only about five percent i think i would think most of those or a substantial percentage of that five percent uh are foreigners as well people who emigrated to great britain i'm very mind that uh, england has its own church of england as well its own official church that's horrendous um i'm not a christian but um you know we're becoming more and more isolated you cannot achieve very much by yourself. You know, you think, let's think of yoga, you can't really learn yoga in a vacuum, you need some kind of school. You definitely can't learn martial arts by yourself, you need a school. Um, if you, I mean, you can learn things, that's true, but um, there's going to come a point when um, you have to you have to learn with other people or gain something from other people. Um, and sometimes, of course, that can be done outside of um, universities. It's not always necessary to go to a university, but it will nevertheless require you to come in contact and strike up some kind of relationship with people in a particular field that you're going to study. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it can't be done otherwise. And I, th I think a part of it is the knowledge you gain, but I think also the part of it is also coming across people who have achieved some degree of mastery that may act a little differently to other people, whether that's a, a yoga master, a master in martial arts, um, a master in painting or poetry or whatever it might be. Um, hopefully they're exemplifying um, a kind of spirit as well, not just, not just technical sophistication, but uh, that hopefully they've used this art to improve themselves and that's also shining through. So that's also what you want to uh, come into contact with. So it's something that the individual would have to search, seek out? Yeah, most of the time, yeah. I mean, there may be coincidences where somebody mentions it to you and that can happen, but most of the time you're going to need to seek it out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah so like a fraternity or a dojo. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Like yeah. 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 Definitely. And they can all they can all vary from you know one group of guys to the next, even within the same let's say martial arts school or fraternity. So um, you know it, it may require a little bit of looking around as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people will recognize eventually that they do need the support of others for their own self development? Um, I think so. I, I would think as society changes over the next few years, and I think uh, we might be heading into harder times, um, the, the people are going to wake up to the fact that they do need people around them just for survival as much as anything else. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and I would assume with the whole COVID situation, a lot of people probably found out who their friends were as well during that time when they were, you know, maybe uh, those people who are finding themselves in difficult situations and who could they rely on at that point, maybe no one in some cases. Um, yeah, so so I think that other people in relationships 
are going to become more important. Hopefully that will be offline, real-world relationships. But I think as a, as a general rule, um, it would be good if Americans and other people were much more engaged in communities and engaged in, in doing things, whether it's martial arts or uh, some kind of art class or uh, martial arts or yoga or whatever it may be. Um, and being more present in the world and in, the, in their own bodies in a sense as well. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I can see a struggle in all of this. I agree with everything you're saying. And I know that this was spelled out and you're probably referring to this. I think the author was Putnam, uh, who uh, wrote Bowling Alone, uh, that, uh, you know, marked all of the, right. this decline in yeah. social activities. But I, I, I think that a lot of people would respond that life right now in the 21st century doesn't really permit them to engage in this. And it seems like there has to be this sort of, I kind of want to call it a creative revolution where people yeah. are like enough is enough. You know, we do need to come together. That, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. We do because we need to, uh, well, for a few reasons. One, we really need to be around other people just for our own emotional stability. Uh, when you think of the percentage of uh, people on uh, you know, uh, antidepressants in this country, uh, I think it's something like 13%, it might even be more than that. And in terms of um, uh, prescription drugs, I believe around 50% of America is on prescription drugs at any in any 30-day period. I mean, there is no reason for that. And a lot of, um, not everything, but a lot of these problems could be solved by getting out to nature, and healthy diet, being around other people that actually uplift you instead of <clears throat> instead of being in this state of anxiety and criticism all the time, which is having an effect on the body. So we need to be around other people for our health, but uh, yeah, in nature for our health a little bit as well. But uh, for our society to function, I think we really have to get back to a point where we meet other people that, that may help the opposite views to us and we're able to think, well, this man is a beast and an enemy and must be possessed by Satan. But, well, maybe he has his own life experiences and his own problems. He's probably not motivated by pure evil or ignorance. I don't know about him or her. Maybe I should at least try and empathize and discover who they are. So at least I can have a bigger picture of what's going on and be more empathetic. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, perhaps stop making assumptions about others and uh, right. thinking that we automatically know everything that someone thinks or feels or believes based on just a couple of statements uh, right. to sit and be present and listen. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, of course, that's one of the worst things. Not, not only thinking that we know everything about them from a couple of statements, but judging everybody by the worst thing they've ever done. You know, they could be could be a saint practically, and then they said something ten years ago, and now they're considered you know, a persona non grata. <laughs> and it's a it's a weird thing. And I think in in other societies, maybe too much you could argue that um, people were elevated we we admired people who were who did great things and kind of maybe let the not so good stuff slide by the wayside whereas now it's the inverse and you know both have their failings but i think 
always seeing the worst in him was by far the worst failing of the two. So, and also, then it means there's no potential to ascend because who's your example? There is no example. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I was reflecting on this yesterday uh, when I was hiking. I, I hike every Friday. I consider that my spiritual practice. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking in terms of the people that we've lost, not necessarily by death, but by being ostracized from the creative community because yeah. of past sins. And, yeah. and you know, that I would still like to have some of their creations and mm -hmm. I hope that at some point they can return to us in, in some mm -hmm. way. Yeah. What it reminds me of also uh, is going back to Nietzsche, what he wrote about in the genealogy of morals is this mm -hmm. idea of resentment. Or I think yeah, right. mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, that people are going after someone for, you know, a moral failing, which are legitimate mm -hmm. moral failings, um, but completely eradicating them from our culture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, very dangerous, unfortunately. I mean, I think that we do at some point need to ignore this and maybe, um, you know, just create whatever we want to create regardless. And maybe there has to be alternative uh, alternative um, ways of showing art or alternative media stations, whatever it is. But um, um, yeah, suddenly you cannot give in to this sort of anti-creative, moralistic, um, really sort of... Uh, mob you know tries to control everything they never contribute anything to society themselves so. yeah it's the herd mentality <laughs> yeah it is yeah totally i know we're uh, starting to run out of time here but uh, i wanted to ask uh, about women uh because mm -hmm. the focus on your book it's really about men but it seems mm -hmm. to me that everything you write could also apply to women as well yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things about, you know, sex, which may be a little bit strange for women to get their heads around, but, um, but yeah, I would say probably 98% of the book could also apply to women. But I, mean, I would say that my philosophy isn't that uh, women should be in the kitchen and men should be making war. Uh, my philosophy is actually that men and women should do the same things, but there may be a difference in proportion. So, um, so let's say martial arts, I think both men and women should learn a martial art or self-defense. Uh, maybe the guy, and I'm not saying this in every single case, but let's just say in general, men want to be more muscular. Um, women probably don't want to be more muscular. Um, so it's just a matter of proportion in that case. But it's good if women can be strong as well and defend themselves. Uh, very good. Uh, so I would recommend that. Uh, and yeah, another thing, so really everything in the book could apply to women because it is, it's more about proportion than about, you don't know, this is man's work and this is women's work. So I don't really see things as that. Because the whole thing is about bringing these two different aspects together, the sort of peaceful and the martial together, the creative and then the physical. So, so suddenly, yeah, so I mean, if women want to read this book and with the more male language, then I would definitely encourage them to, you know, take all the same lessons and just think about proportion. Proportion is something we don't think about much in society, but that would really be the difference. So, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I was thinking specifically about a friend of mine who likes to work with various goddesses in terms of like sort of energetically. And it's, 
but yet she's never looked as far as i know at like athena uh mm-hmm. and i was also thinking in india there are some really good examples that would fit this archetype like durga uh right and kali to an extent as well kali, yeah yeah um that you know there is there are models of uh female warriors um, yeah, sure. And, 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 and Kali actually, and, and there's a martial art in India called Kalari Paya, um, which is about like, like a very energetic form of Kung Fu, lots of leaping in the air. But in, it, traditionally, in the Hindu Kalari Paya temples, they would have a seven story altar, and at the top would be a statue of Kali. So, so we find it sort of, again, the mystical and the the marshal, in this case, the female as well. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, I do encourage everyone to uh, get a copy of your book and uh, read it. I I found it very insightful. And like I said, uh, I, so much of it resonated. uh, Oh, great. Thank you. My own thinking. Uh, My only regret is that I only had the time to read it once before speaking. Uh, but uh, let me ask uh, uh, just two final questions. Sure. Um, uh, what What's next for you? Um, yeah, good question. So I'm, I mean, I'm always working on a few different things. Um, I think the really uh, one of the one of the two things I'm going to work on next is either a book on more practical on hypnosis, meditation, uh, that kind of thing. Or I'm going to write a book on America, one of the two. Although I have also written a lengthy prose poem, sort of the cross between Khalil Gibran's The Prophet and um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's Thus Speaks Zarathustra, so that might be out before then. But um, I think it would be one of the two, either a book on hypnosis, meditation, uh, the consciousness, ordering the consciousness, or on America. So we'll see. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I, I look forward to those. That all sounds uh, very interesting. So how can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So they can go to my website, angelmillar.com, A-N-G-E-L-M-I-L-L-A-R.com. And uh, they can find I write a lot of articles that they can find on there, a little bit about my books, a little bit about hypnosis and mentoring as well. So pretty much the whole thing. Um, obviously, my books are in Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, IndieBound and all those other good places. So. Okay. All right. Wonderful. I will uh, put a link to your website and to your books, um, at least um, the uh, uh, recent one and the initiatory uh, book uh, in the Great. show notes and in the video description on YouTube. Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, Angel, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated being uh, able to speak with you. And uh, there's a lot more I think I could talk to you about. I know there was a lot we didn't get into, but I didn't (laughs) want to give away everything in your book either. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. It's great speaking with you. Definitely. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And that's a wrap on episode 21 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second, and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, please consider writing a short but positive review. Uh, And please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. 
make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been releasing episodes weekly and would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating additional video content for the YouTube channel, including more book reviews, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious response to the climate crisis. But that extra content takes a lot of time and work. If you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes my work possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.